God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on who I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you said to me then, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he's also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Our next reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 22 to 30. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews were there and gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Not one will be snatched from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and my Father are one. And our final reading is from the, gospel, the letter to Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he has chosen us in him before the creation of, world, of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure and will. To the praise of his glor glorious graces, which he has freely given to us, the ones he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made it known to us the mysteries of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect while the time reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined accordingly to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be praised for the praise of his, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, well, thanks very much, um, Michael. And um, thanks, uh, thanks again for having me over these last few weeks. It's been a real delight and privilege to be here at um, the newest of the Trinity Network Church plants. Um, yeah, it's uh, so wonderful to have um, had this time with you 
and um, to share with you from God's Word each week. Uh, can I ask you please to take out this little insert? Um, once again, I've given you a pretty detailed outline of what we're going to cover today. Uh, there's some blanks for you to fill in as we go along, and we'll follow a similar kind of format to previous weeks. Look at a big idea, tackle some questions, and then think about how we respond. If you look at the... Uh, yeah, pens, if anyone can make them appear magically. Oh, look at that. Santa's little helper, I think. <laughs> um, okay, so if you have a look at the top of the handout, just a reminder of what we've covered in the first two weeks of this series on the doctrine of election. Uh, from the first week, we saw that God is completely sovereign. Like a potter with clay, the creator is entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. Uh, but uh, last week, we then saw how you and I, we are all totally sinful. Uh, there is no one righteous, not even one, uh, which means that if God treated us fairly, as we deserve, then no one would be saved. And in a sense, the last two weeks have been building to this final talk, uh, where we try and wrestle with this idea of election, and in particular, as you would have heard in that last reading, this idea of predestination. Um, I have been deferring some of the questions that people have asked and we'll have a Q&A time at the end of today as well. So no doubt this will uh, provoke some thoughts in you. So please come back in question time. There's uh, the mobile number or else you can just pop your hand up later. And to remind you also that I've been bringing along some books. Uh, you guys, can I say, you are good readers. I've sold almost all of them, which is excellent. Uh, but there's a couple of last books which I just thought I'd recommend to you. One is, I'm going to refer to it today, called The Everlasting Purpose. Uh, understanding Predestination. It's a very little book. And the other one here is an oldie but a goodie. It's by J.R. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's all about trying to answer the question, if God is completely sovereign, why do we bother trying to share the gospel with people? And you'll see lots of, of those ideas picked up today. So those are books that you can come and get from me afterwards if you would like. Um, I think that most of the questions that we have in this area around election pull down to one of two categories. Uh, firstly, if it's up to God to choose us, then how can we be held responsible? Uh, what about free will? There's a series of questions around that. The second, uh, if God does choose us, then how ought we live in response? And there's a whole series of questions there around why do we pray? Uh, why are we involved in evangelism? I'm going to try and address those two ideas uh, in this talk today. Start them, as we have each week, with the big idea. And actually today, there are two big ideas. Uh, two big ideas that go to the very nature of God's character, uh, which I've tried to say is the key to this whole series. You'll see them printed there. Firstly, when did God choose us? And secondly, why did God choose us? Firstly, when God chose us, here's the blank for you to fill in. When God chose us, before the creation of the world. Before the creation of the world. Now, in many ways, the most astonishing aspect of the doctrine of election in the Bible, the most astonishing aspect is not that God chooses us, it's when he did so. So according to the New Testament, God chose us not just before we were born. We saw that idea in Romans chapter 9. He chose us even before he made the universe. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, which I printed there for you on your handout. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. This is the strongest form of the doctrine of election. It's what people have called predestination or being destined even before the world was made. And it's based on the six different occurrences in the New Testament of the word that is translated predestined. You could see that in verse 5 of Ephesians 1, uh, those little squiggly lines after um, the word predestined, that's the original language, that's Greek. There's six different occurrences, all of which I've given you the references therefore on your handout uh, that you could check out sometime. Well, I realise that if this is the first time that you've heard of the idea of predestination, my guess is your head is probably spinning and spinning with all sorts of questions. How is that even possible for God to choose us even before he has made the world? Before we dig into some of those questions, can I ask you to play for just a moment the what-if game? The what-if game? Uh, You know how this game works. What if it's true? What if it's true that God chose us even before he made the world. What I want to say today is that if it's true, I hope you can see that the doctrine of predestination, as well as being terribly confronting, uh, that much is obvious, is also deeply comforting. It's also deeply comforting. Comforting and reassuring to be told that even before he started to make the universe, God had already chosen us. There's a couple of ways, I think, in which that's apparent, why that's so reassuring. If you reflect on last week's talk, we saw that we are enslaved to our sinful nature, which means that if salvation were left up to us, we'd always choose poorly. So we'd be without any hope. But to put it more positively, if God chose us before he even began to create the world, It's pretty clear, I think, that our standing before him has nothing to do with our efforts. And although at one level that's a deep affront to our pride, it's also the most wonderful relief to know that you don't have to rely on yourself. Given how fickle and fallible I am, how easily and how often I stumble and fall, it is deeply comforting to know that my salvation is dependent not on my efforts, but on God's prior choice. That's why I think Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, began with, praise be to God. Praise God. He has chosen us, and he did it even before he made the world. A couple of weeks ago, I had um, someone from uh, Trinity City, where I go normally, uh, come up to me uh, to talk about this idea of the doctrine of election. Uh, And uh, she told me her story, and it was so encouraging that I thought I would ask her to write it down that I could share it with you. This is a a lady who's in her early 70s. Let me just read out what she said. When I moved to Adelaide in 1976, I tried out Trinity, and on the first Sunday I went there, I was utterly appalled by the sermon that I heard. It was the first in a series on the doctrine of election. 
I had never heard anything so offensive before in my life. The doctrine of total depravity, the idea that we didn't have free will, I was completely offended by it. I really didn't want to hear another sermon like that. Uh, However, the preaching was so carefully argued with points backed up from Scripture that I kept on coming back. Uh, But I decided that I'd try and beat the preachers at their own game. So, using my Bible, I set about trying to disprove this offensive teaching. Over the next three months, I filled an exercise book with all my arguments, but they kept turning out to be circular. It was so infuriating. Gradually, I realised I wanted to know what was true, even if it was confronting. And so one afternoon, I found myself crying out in desperation, it can't be true. And immediately these words came to me, it is true, and it applies to you. And so, at the age of 26, this offensive doctrine of election, which I'd found so confronting, and I still do after 43 years of believing it, it became a source of great comfort. I'd found my identity as an ordinary sinner like everyone else, whom God had for some reason known only to him, chosen me, that I might be in his family of those for whom Christ had died. So what was that reason? Why does God choose us? Well, point two then, why God chose us? Because he, here's the blank, loves us. Because he loves us. See, in Ephesians 1 verse 4, it says, In love he predestined us. It says the reason why God chose us is not because we were deserving in any way. How could we have been? We weren't even born. The world wasn't even made. He chose us simply because he loved us. There are many questions around the doctrine of election which I suspect we'll never answer. Why would God make some people then knowing they wouldn't be chosen? Or here's a question that uh, I'll never forget the day when one of my kids, uh, who was eight years old at the time, after bedtime stories, uh, turned to me and said, Daddy, why would God make a talking snake if it would cause Adam and Eve to sin? Typical pastor's kid, right? Uh, Thanks a lot, I don't know. Here's my question. Why would God make a world knowing that it would cost the death of his son to redeem it? There are many questions about election I suspect we'll never have the answer to. But one question, we do know the answer. Why did God choose us? Because he loved us. Well, point two then, some questions to consider. I realise that there are some big questions that this raises. Let me try and tackle them for a few minutes. Uh, Two in particular that I want to talk about today. Near the bottom of the page, firstly, if it's up to God to choose us, how can we be held responsible? This is the question about free will. And then if you turn over the page, you'll see the second question I want to talk about. Has God predestined some for hell? Well, let's start with the first question then. If it's up to God to choose us, how can we be held responsible? What about free will? Well, one level, we saw in talk two that the reason we're all responsible is because we all reject our loving creator. And so it's right that we reap what we sow. 
Now, I realise, of course, that more needs to be said about this. Uh, as you've heard, I work with undergraduates, so it won't surprise you to hear that this topic does come up for a fair bit of discussion in a university. Let me introduce you to what I found to be the single most helpful resource that I've come across in this area. Uh, it's a chapter that I photocopied out of a book which any time a student says to me, so, you know, what about free will? How does it all fit together? I say to them, go and read this chapter, and then let's talk about the issues that it raises afterwards. It's from a book called How Long, O Lord, uh, by a Canadian theologian called Don Carson. Uh, and I've printed there for you just one paragraph, which kind of sums up what he tries to say about this area of God being sovereign and us being responsible. Have a look at the quote at the bottom of the page. The Bible teaches that both of the following propositions are true. Firstly, that God is absolutely sovereign. But his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimised or mitigated. Secondly, human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions and so forth. And they're rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. And the view that both of these propositions are true, I call compatibilism. Now you notice that when Carson says that God is absolutely sovereign and you and I are completely responsible, he doesn't try to explain how both of those things can be simultaneously true. Uh, what he says is that they are true, even if we find it hard to reconcile and put that together. And what he's really saying then, and what he's forcing us to do, is to ask, is this view, is compatibilism supported by Scripture? Well, take for example, if you will, Pharaoh and the ten plagues. You know the story here. Uh, uh, the Egyptians have enslaved the Israelites. God sends Moses to deliver them. And each time Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, uh, Pharaoh, he sort of relents but then doesn't, and a plague strikes the land. The really interesting thing throughout this whole episode is that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are clearly expressed. See, sometimes it says that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And sometimes it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see examples of all three, actually, in chapter 9. If you turn over the page, you'll see from Exodus chapter 9, verse 34. Have a look at what it says. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped... He sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. As so Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. The point is that when taken together, I think it's clear that Scripture affirms both that God is totally sovereign and that we are completely responsible for our actions. If you want to take a New Testament example, take what we will pray a little later on in this service. Take the Lord's Prayer. 
You see, in the Lord's Prayer, we start by confessing God's unfettered sovereignty. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And at the same time, we acknowledge that we are responsible for our actions. So we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, obviously, you will want to check out other passages in the Bible to see if this view, compatibilism, is true. Uh, You recall, actually, I urged you in the first week of this series to be like the Bereans, to test what you hear against Scripture. Uh, But for now, if the Bible affirms both that God is sovereign and that we are responsible for our actions then I, for one, think there is not much value in us talking about human free will. I say that because it seems to me that when people want to insist that my will is free, what they're really worried about is that somehow if God knows my decisions before I make up my mind, then my decisions aren't real. And I understand the concern, But my difficulty with it is that it can leave us with the impression that although God, who is sovereign, knows every other detail about his creation, he knows what happens to the birds of the air, he knows the number of hairs on my head, he knows the rise and fall of nations even before they happen, he knows the date of my death, and he knows the date of the the Lord Jesus' return, even though the Bible insists God knows all of those things, to say that human free will exists in the way in which people often use it, it seems to say God knows everything except my mind. And that feels to me just a little bit presumptuous. Or to put it this way, I'm actually okay with saying, yep, we have human free will, provided you're happy with me adding... And 100% of humans use that free will to turn away from God. Because as we saw last week, if we were capable of saving ourselves, Christ died for nothing. Second question then. Halfway down the handout, on the second page, has God predestined some for hell? This is what uh, the theologians call double predestination does god predestine some for eternal life and some for eternal condemnation let me acknowledge that i think this is perhaps the hardest question it's hard obviously because it goes towards the very nature of god's character much as you might like i'm not going to avoid it today look with me at romans chapter 9 verse 22 what if god although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Is Romans 9 saying that God predestines some for damnation? Well, let me say a couple of things. Uh, Without getting too technical... Did you notice how the verses, uh, verse 22 and verse 23, are actually phrased slightly differently? So in verse 22, the phrase is prepared for destruction, whereas verse 23 speaks of God preparing in advance for glory. 
Uh, the first is passively expressed. The second is far more active. God's work is clearly on view. And in fact, the most interesting thing about Romans chapter 9 is that the, the, the word that's translated as predestined, remember how I said there were six occurrences of it? It's not here. This is not one of those six occurrences because actually the Bible never uses the word predestination and apply it to unbelievers. It only ever uses predestination as applied to those who are in Christ. I really admire the careful and precise way that uh, Broughton Knox has put it in that book that I referred to before, The Everlasting Purpose. Have a look at the quote here. The doctrine of predestination is that from eternity, God has chosen some for salvation in Christ, but has left others to their own choice of rebellion against him. On some he has mercy, drawing them to Christ. Others he has hardened by allowing them to harden themselves, or rather, to be hardened by Satan, whose slaves they have willingly become. Now let me acknowledge, um, I realise this is pretty confronting. Uh, you'll notice, of course, that I've not used the argument from earlier in Romans chapter 9, you know, who are you to talk back to God? I'm not trying to suppress discussion around this. What I will say is that I think in the end we do have one choice to make, and it's this. Given that we will never comprehend everything about our infinite and perfect God, our choice is whether we will believe him when he says that he is good and trustworthy. Or will we let our discomfort with the Bible's explanations become our primary concern? Uh, to put it slightly differently, I want to ask you today if you're prepared to start with the presumption that the God who loves all that he has made is fair and just. There's a quote there from Genesis chapter 18. And this is the extraordinary episode where Abraham is almost bargaining or negotiating with God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. God, will you spare the city if you find even 50 people who are righteous there? Or 45 or 40 or 30 and so on. In chapter 18, verse 25, God, uh, Abraham asks almost rhetorically, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? My point is that if you can begin with that presumption that the God who loves us is fair, you might start to glimpse how this doctrine of election, which I admit is very confronting, is also wonderfully comforting. Because what the Bible repeatedly insists is that God is perfectly just and perfectly fair, but at the same time, he leans towards mercy. He leans towards compassion. You remember that because we've all rejected our creator, if we were to be treated fairly, then no one would be saved. So that means the fact that anyone is saved doesn't make God unjust. The fact that God saves anybody is actually a testimony to his mercy. Let me give you an example. Imagine, if you will, that there are two criminals on death row. They're about to be executed for their crimes. And the king at the last minute pardons one of them, but not the other. Would you say that he's unjust? 
Well, of course not. That's entirely the wrong standard for assessing his character. That he pardons any is a testimony to his mercy. Time and time again, the Bible portrays for us a God who is supremely merciful. A God who keeps relenting and withholding judgment, even when it's deserved. Think of Nineveh, when Jonah finally gets there. Think of David, when he eventually repents of his adultery. Think of Moses, pleading with God after the golden calf incident. Time and time again, we see a God who is absolutely just and right, and yet, at the same time, he leans towards mercy. Can I say, from my perspective, from my story, uh, I've been a Christian now for over 30 years. And I want to say today that I still feel the challenges of the doctrine of election, of predestination. I still find that it's terribly confronting. But my experience is that after 30 years of seeing God's character, of seeing his goodness and mercy shown in extraordinary situations, I am, shall I say, less bothered by the doctrine of election than when I first heard about it. That's not meant to be a cop-out. That's not meant to be condescending to younger believers, as if to say, I'll just wait till you're a bit older and you'll be more okay with it. It's actually an admission that in the end, the Bible probably won't fully answer all of my philosophical questions because that's not why the Bible was written. The Bible was written to showcase God's character, his incredible compassion, and his mercy, which, as we heard earlier in this service, is new every morning. Well, the big idea, some questions. Let me try and tie it all up then with a couple of suggestions as to how we might respond. At point three then. And remember that second category of question I identified right at the start of this talk? If God does choose us, how should we live? Why would we bother praying? Why would we bother with evangelism? Well, the key is, uh, as we've seen, that although God is sovereign in every way, we are still responsible for our actions. That is, as I've written there on your handout, election should not make us lazy or licentious. Election should not make us lazy or licentious. Uh, those are the two most common responses to hearing of God's sovereignty. Laziness, a kind of apathy. Look, why bother doing anything if God's will is going to be done anyway? Or licentiousness, which is just an old-fashioned word for self-indulgent. See, as if knowing that God has chosen us means that we can live however we want because we've got to get out of jail free card at the end. Can I say to you that like in any relationship, in any friendship, in a marriage, if someone decides of their own volition that they will shower their love on you, it means you want to respond positively. Uh, otherwise, the relationship won't last. Uh, or, perhaps more to the point, you would never tolerate someone else treating you that way. Uh, so if I'm asked, why do I have to live a particular way if it's up to God to choose me? My response is, well, why wouldn't you want to live in a way that pleases the one who has showered his love and mercy on you? Here's a few thoughts then. 
How do we respond? Firstly, make disciples of all nations. Uh, Jesus never says to Christians, kick back and wait for God to save the nations. He never says that. He says, make disciples of all nations. So don't let our confidence in God's unfettered sovereignty, our conviction that his kingdom will come, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, don't let that conviction turn us into Christians who shy away from sharing the gospel with others. Perhaps out of fear, or maybe apathy, or just because it's inconvenient. Uh, William Carey, who some of you will have heard of, uh, he is described as the father of modern mission. Uh, William Carey, when in 1786, proposed to set up the first Baptist Mission Society to send people to the nations, uh, he was told by an older minister, and I've quoted it there for you because it's just so good, young man, when God is pleased to convert the, he convert the heathen, he will do so without your help or mine. Uh, there's a funny story, which um, actually it's not that funny, it's a little bit sad, but uh, when I first got to Adelaide, you know, 15 years ago, um, someone told me about a church up in the hills uh, that was so convinced that God would save the nations and we had no part to play in it that they wouldn't advertise their service times. Because they figured those who were elect, they'd make their way to their church eventually. Now, this is the part that's a bit sad. The church doesn't exist anymore, um, you know, kind of for obvious reasons, right? People didn't actually work out where it was. Can I say as an aside, if you are here today as someone who's not a Christian, then to add my welcome to that of Collins before, uh, we're delighted that you've chosen to come along and check out this community. Uh, if you're here because a member of this church has invited you, in fact, because, to be honest, they've just kept nagging you over and over again, they invite you to events, they try and get you to come to church, can I say that the reason they do that is not to offend you in any way, they put themselves out there because they deeply love you. Love you enough even to risk their friendship with you if it might mean you gain the salvation they have already received. So if you're here today at the invitation of a member of this church, can I ask you, please, ask them why? Why do they keep bothering? Because I know they'd love to tell you. Uh, at the same time, I hope that you can see that the alternative view to God being completely sovereign, the alternative view to God's electing choice, to think that it's up to us to choose God, that actually places a terrible evangelistic burden on our shoulders. You see, that would say that the fate of the lost depends on us. Because if people aren't saved, it's because we didn't tell them. I think the only way in which we will persist in evangelism throughout our whole lives is knowing that the salvation of others doesn't depend on us, but ultimately only on God's supreme mercy. I thought I'd tell you a story to reflect that. Uh, my wife spent many years praying for an unbelieving friend uh, who, as she got cancer and near death, uh, Wendy went to visit her one last time to urge her to repent. Sadly, she didn't. And I remember when Wendy came back home and I asked her how she felt. And what she said was that she knew that she had done everything that she could and that her friend's salvation was up to God, as it had always been. Of course, Wendy was deeply saddened 
but not overcome by grief. Rather, content that whatever the God of mercy did with her friend, it would be right. Make disciples of all nations. Secondly, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, The reason I've quoted Romans 10 there for you is that the confronting words of Romans 9, they give way to the comforting words of Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I wanted to point that out because when people ask, how can I be certain that God has chosen me from before the creation of the world? How can I know that for sure? Uh, What I invariably say is what was said to me when I first asked that question, when I heard it years ago, it stuck with me ever since. If you're not sure that you have been predestined, get yourself predestined today. (laughs) Call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. And so finally then, Christian assurance. I want to conclude this talk and this whole series with Jesus' words from uh, from John chapter 10, which we heard earlier. Because I've been saying that this confronting doctrine is also wonderfully comforting. And that's because Christian assurance ultimately lies not in what I propose to do, but in what God has done for me and promises that he will bring to completion. Because Christian assurance is never found in us, in our resolve, in our plans, in our intentions. Christian assurance is found solely in the conviction that God chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And that means that the place where I want to finish is not by looking in at ourselves. It's not by looking at the list of questions that we might be wrestling with. Rather, I want us to look up. Look up to Jesus, who, is at his, who with his Father is greater than all and who promises that no one can snatch us away. John 10, verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice, says Jesus. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of his hand. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the deep reassurance that comes from knowing that you have chosen us from even before the creation of the world. We acknowledge and recognize that that raises all sorts of questions for us. So we pray, more than anything, remind us today of your deeply compassionate and loving character, that your mercies are new every morning, and that you love us with an everlasting love, enough to give your Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen.